Oh, hello. I didn't see you there. This is Dr. Thaddeus Venture, and you're listening to the Long Box Guys. Whatever that means. the long box guys gonna do tonight brain the same thing the long box guys do every night pinky drink and talk about comics they're useless to taking over the world yes hey everybody welcome to this week's episode of the long box guys with me are some of my very best friends since i was a very little kid and a new friend first we'll go to mike mike how you doing and what are you drinking i am doing excellent tonight and i am drinking an a and w root beer because i may have to work later uh, but delicious, delicious root beer. Tommy, how you doing? What are you drinking there, buddy? I am drinking some Hamilton's Lowland Scotch. What are you drinking, Tommy? I have some. Uh, I use Grizzly tonight because uh, I'm a lazy drunk. And uh, they brought me Jack Daniels. Is it weird that they know me by name? Hey, Tom. Hey, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. yeah I think it's weird, weird that you know them by name. <laughs> oh, Jeff is great. <laughs> Josh, uh, how you doing? What are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking, uh, it's going to take me a second here, it's uh, Founders, a brewery I enjoy from Michigan, and it is their Velvet Rush. It is an imperial brown ale brewed with coffee, chocolate, vanilla extract, milk sugar, and aged in bourbon barrels. It's basically like a brown sugar and bourbon cocktail. It's, uh, oh, saving one of those, that sounds delicious. It's pretty nice. Oh, that does sound nice. And Sasha, our, our, our friend who's been on the podcast once before, how are you and what are you drinking? I'm doing pretty well, uh, even if uh, even if the craziness of the week is already kind of on top of me. But I'm doing well, and I am drinking a kind of a semi-sweet uh, German wine I got from Trader Joe's. Delicious. Pretty good. Uh, are we a big fan of the German wines? You know, sometimes. Um, this is just one that was recommended to me um, when I was at Trader Joe's. I was like, look, I'm celebrating my birthday. I need something to, like, you know, toast, right? And they're like, well, try this one. And I actually had recognized the brand because I think I bought it before. And I was like, okay. And it's sort of, yeah. it's the right balance of, like, not being too sweet but also not being dry because I don't like dry wines. So it works out well. I mean, you don't see a lot of, it's a red, right? You don't see a lot of German reds floating around here anyway, right? So usually you see the Gewurztraminers and all the other. They have the excellent Rieslings. Yeah. Because yeah. Germany is definitely above the grapevine, which, of course, was, uh, as a historian, that was a, a big part of how maps were even drawn. But speaking of Germany, today we're talking about mouse. That's King of the Segways, my friends. King of the Segways. I mean, I set it up for you pretty nicely. So. <laughs> you did. You, you, you made it a nice, easy one. And for those who are not to know, Sasha is a uh, historian, and she is uh, a Jewish historian, someone who's very knowledgeable in Jewish representation, not only in pop culture, but also in comic books. So we're very happy to have her on. Uh, we'll talk just a, for a few seconds about the slight controversy that happened in Tennessee, and then we'll go into Mouse, the history of Mouse, a little bit. And... Uh, yeah, all that. So, Sasha, you want to talk about what happened in Tennessee? So, basically, a school board in Tennessee decided to uh, replace Mouse, um, written by Art Spiegelman, um, 
and because it was uh, too violent, or it was like I think it was a uh, crude language, excuse me, and um, some nudity was the issue. And it's unclear right now what they're going to replace it with. I've seen a lot of things floating online that they're going to replace it with, like the boy in the striped pajamas, which I think would be a. I think that would be a mistake. Um, but the, it should be noted that I think the this book was being read by like 14 year olds and 13 year olds. So this is not a book that was being given to like eight year olds. Um, these are students that have probably already seen far more risque things online and in film and, you know, in video games even, that, like, it, it's it's a very silly event that has caused quite the social media storm, and rightfully so, because Mouse is an incredible graphic novel. I absolutely agree there. Um, it's age-appropriate, I think, for teenagers. It holds their attention. It has allegories in there that I think people can easily understand. The Jewish people being represented by mice, the Nazis being represented as cats, Americans being represented as dogs, etc., etc. I mean, personally, the real offending part of Mouse as a cat person um, <laughs> is the fact that they portray that he portrayed uh, the, the, the Nazis as cats, but it's interesting that this is sort of, it's sort of like Animal Farm, where it's like, you know, the, a story that is very familiar, but with anthropomorphic animals, except here, the al- it's not even an allegory, it's just like the same thing, just with animals. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that uh, is a little hard to read sometimes in Mouse is, you know, the grandfather is incredibly racist towards African Americans here in the United States, and that, was, that actually was part of the argument, but I think that was part of the argument by the Tennessee board to make it more palatable to more people that they wanted to ban this book. I don't really think they actually took umbrage to that. Uh, that's just my opinion on that one. I had nothing to base that on other than the fact that screw those guys in Tennessee. Let's I mean, un- I just want to know how many people actually read the, the, the graphic novel. Well, we all did. No, no, I mean, I mean in Tennessee. Like, the people <laughs> yeah, in Tennessee. Yeah. Did they happen to, like, one like did they happen to see their child reading it? It was like oh that's a terrible scene in a in a thing that my child is reading. Or did they bother to actually read it and then they're like oh this is not appropriate? I doubt they read it. I really do. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a lot to get through. Let's uncircle the drain for our listeners a little bit and tell them what Mouse is. Sure. Go ahead, Josh. Anybody? Oh, uh, so <laughs> Mouse is an allegorical comic. Um. It was initially put in as fiction and then reclassified as nonfiction as the story told by the author is really a direct translation of a relationship in the present, well, not the present, um, in his past with between him and his father, uh, his father having been a survivor of Auschwitz. And the story his father tells him of his time in pre-World War to Poland and as it progressed into him becoming a, uh, a, a prisoner and eventually a survivor of Auschwitz. His mother is also a survivor of Auschwitz who eventually commits suicide and the father actually marries someone he knew as a child in Poland post, uh, post-World War Two, And at the time, uh, they are... Uh, the time of the writing or recording of the conversations. This is the is it the 
I'm trying to remember what years he's actually talking to his father. I'm guessing it's the early 60s. Uh, I think the 70s. I was was thinking the 70s myself. Yeah, I'm not sure. But, uh, and his father is then a resident of a Jewish ghetto in Queens. uh, And him and his father don't have a great familiar relationship. But the author keeps going back to try to get the real story about what happened to his father during those years. And uh, this is sort of both the telling of of that situation of, of sort of a, a postmodern relationship of how survivors deal with their children, as well as a retelling of the story as as translated by the words of that person's father as they try to get the real story. So, um, yeah, there's definitely some there's a lot of racism in there. The the accuracy, the historical accuracy is only as concise as his father's memory, as a lot of the physical records their mother kept before she committed suicide, the father burned at the time of her death. So it's it's sort of an odd amalgamation of fiction and nonfiction with the overlay of sort of the anthropomorphic story where we all see those characters and I'll, I'll just say crudely drawn and represented. I don't know if that's intentional. I honestly, I don't know the the outreach of the of the authors, both uh, you know, tenacity for being a, a a good a good artist, or whether or not that's an intentional way to make things softer. I'll say, uh, as it is less realistic. So as you can sort of, you sort of pull away from. The realistic art of how someone might represent sort of the tragedy of Auschwitz, you can see this better through the eyes of someone who's both anthropomorphized it and, and pushed it away from an accurate spectrum. It's uh, one of the few novels, graphic novelizations that's ever been given the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, it was in an uncategorized way. It was uh, what's called In the Letters. So it was not cat, not in any category for the Pulitzer, uh, because people, uh, especially the uh, the press at the time, or jur- uh, journalists were uh, opposed to uh, calling it either fiction or nonfiction. There were arguments on both sides. So uh, it's an amazing story to hear and read. And if you haven't, you should do that. Excellent. Well put. Great, uh, great synopsis, Josh. Uh, and you mentioned uh, briefly there, Sasha, that they were thinking of replacing it with the boy in the striped pajamas. Uh, when, it, when you're talking about emotionally damaging, I cried till I needed to drink a Gatorade and get an IV when I watched, in class, watch the boy in the striped pajamas. Uh, that's a toughie, too. So I, I claim no ownership on this. I think it was just a rumor that I happen to have seen on a Twitter thread. Um, I will say that the person, the thread in question, I read it earlier last week, so it's a little vague in my memory, but The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, as far as I know, is a fictional retelling. Yes. Much more fictional compared to Mouse, which is based on the real events of this man's father. Um, but the other issue is perspective, right? In the boy in striped pajamas, you have this German boy 
who and everything is sort of told through that perspective whereas here the perspective ownership is on the Jewish person and the perspective in the boy in strap pajamas is also very limited and you don't get the full scope of this the the scale of what is happening during World War II during the Holocaust like you do in Mouse and it it definitely demonstrates like anti-semitism is i think one of the oldest forms of prejudice and hatred that is still prevalent in society and it, the way that mouse demonstrates that like there's these moments where like the mice are wearing like pig masks to fit in and the kids are yelling, oh my god, the Jews, they're demons. And he's like, look, I, I have this pig mask. I'm a pig like you. I, this is what I look like. And they're like, oh, don't worry. This isn't this isn't a Jew. This is a, this is a Pole like us or whoever it was in, in that panel. Um, so it's it becomes very, very personal very quickly. And I'm going to confess... I have not read the whole thing of Mouse. I have read very little Holocaust literature because, to be perfectly blunt, it scares the ever-loving shit out of me. Um, so I, I, I am a historian. I am Jewish. I am a Jewish historian. Um, so, like, I, I know this history. But it, it's something that is very difficult to sit through for me and for a lot of people. Like, I still cannot sit through Schindler's List. I've never seen it all the way through, and I never will. Me neither. It's a fantastic film. I know it's a very important film. I encourage a lot of people who are curious about, um, even though it's a little bit fictionalized, like a lot of period pieces are, which <laughs> Tom and I have talked about, but it's, it's one of those things where, like, this is something everybody should watch who can handle watching it or who can handle reading it. And Mouse is, I think, a great, does a great job of it's gonna it's gonna hit you and it's gonna hit you hard, but it does give you some in between moments to breathe and to sort of take it all in and process it as you're going through, which is why it's such an amazing literary tool for young people. And it's also good as a literary tool for young people because people can relate to a relationship with parents. Exactly. Um, yeah. Especially teenagers who are starting to have uh, understand that parents have flaws, so it. Not only does it talk about the Holocaust, but it also has that whole parent-son, you know, father-son dynamic that a reader can relate to, and then as they're relating to that part of the story, absorb the rest of the story. Definitely. So, an excellent book to teach from. Yeah, and it's, and not, it's sometimes horrible. But if, if, as you go through, if you are... If you're very far removed from World War II and survivors and Auschwitz and all of that, some of the most horrible moments are sort of the uncomfortableness between father and son in that book, where World War II is so far removed from some of us that we're like, uh, I get it, it was horrible, but it's so not relatable. I, I can't extend my... That, that my my psyche to that I can read it as history but the horribleness sort of between father and son and there's just a few brief moments there that really strike a I mean struck a chord with me as I wrote as I read it um, that sort of pulls you in, into that world uh, an example of that was when he was returning those groceries 
so the father goes back and returns uh, half a box of cornflakes uh, because he's learned to be so frugal and so careful with his stuff uh, because of Auschwitz and makes the son incredibly, incredibly uncomfortable. But I felt that I felt that that palpable dad, what are you doing kind of feeling. Or when, you know, he is trying to get his son to help him fix the drain pipe. And his son's like, I have no idea how to fix the drain pipe. Why don't you just call someone to have the drain pipe fixed? You have the money. You have the resources to, to get that done. Just call somebody and do it. You know, I don't have those skills. And yet his father's like, no, just come and fix a drain pipe. And instead, you know, his father tries to get up on the ladder and fix a drain pipe. And he ends up having a neighbor come over and help him. And it ends up being this big sort of argument between him and his father where, like, the son is like, I don't have time for this and I don't have the skills for it. Just call somebody and have it done. And his father is like, this is this is not something that you need somebody to do. You, we can just do this. And, this is not the way. This is it's, not the way. And yet, and yet they're having these these very common sort of issues that a father and son would have that are, you know, that are just sort of generation gap, never mind like something that needed to be something from a horrible, you know, family history problem. It's just something that everybody can relate to. And it does, this mouse also touches on something that I don't see talked about in other like Holocaust related literature, at least to the, to, to my knowledge, because I cannot read a lot of it. It's these little details of like, you know, a poster that says uh, reward for every unregistered Jew you find one kilogram of sugar um, because of supplies and rations. And like, this is like the, the buildup of all of this bigotry and hatred that has been imbued and taught and, 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 exacerbated to the point of extremes and, and genocide that like you're relocating people like there's talks I think this is page like where is it like 81 where like he's talking to a friend about like I have a good friend a pole who's uh, willing to hide my son until the situation is better and somebody's like oh I think he'd take your son too and he brings it up to the family and the family's like I'm never going to give up I can't give up my child but that's the reality of what these people what what was being faced you're being moved out and you're trying to like and this isn't just fiction these this is based in reality um the horror stories just when you think it can't get any worse or this is you've heard the worst of it something comes along and you're like nope it's it's worse um on there's a show called finding your roots and they have bring celebrities on and they do their research and they had this one I think she's a director and producer I cannot remember her name but they found out that one of her ancestors she had some Jewish ancestry um, or she was Jewish and this was like a branch of her family but point being there was this one woman somewhere in her family she had married a Ukrainian man and the Ukrainian man enlisted in the Red Army and was going to fight in the war and to hide his Jewish wife and their Jewish baby he sent them to the mother-in-law to his mother and as soon as I read that, I said, oh, God, they're going to die. It, it's sad, but it's true. And what did I find? The mother-in-law turned in her daughter-in-law and the baby to the Nazis. And you can guess what happened afterwards. Um, and so one wanna. of the things that... And, but this is the unfortunate reality, that it, it, 
as Nazis spread, they gave, you know, as they spread into Poland and into Ukraine, they gave license to a lot of the bigotry that already existed in those places. And, and I wish we didn't see so many allegories for that happening here in the United States sometimes, especially when we go back to, you know, the uh, our last president. Yeah, I mean, so my, my ancestors are Polish and Russian Jews. Um, and this is really uh, a very pointed piece at Polish Jews, right? And we get to see uh, very early in the story how the Poles feel about the communists uh, and how that scares the Poles into, into sort of moving away from the Russian front. Uh, it also shows how the Poles are uh, uh, both Polish the citizens and Jews are, are pushed into service into the Polish army and how very quickly the Poles are overwhelmed by the Germans because they're completely unprepared. They actually mention right as he gets conscripted into the Polish army that they go to basic training in Poland for a few days before they're sent to the front, right? So they're basically handed a rifle, shown how to use it, and sent to go face the German army who's been building up since, whatever, 1932, right? Since so the, the U scouts, yes. Right, so the, the, the Poles are, you know, they have probably bolt-action rifles at the time, and most of their military might is literally cavalry, I mean horses, uh, to go fight the Germans at the beginning of the war. It's, it's one of those things where there's a perspective that never gets shown, and Mouse does, he just does a great job of, of pulling all of this out of his parentage and putting it into very early and very popular culture in the U.S. and really flipping a coin and hoping for the best. And I don't think, I don't think he thought it was going to become the tour de force it became. I don't even think he thought it would get very far, honestly, in the pub, in, in, in publication. And, that lends itself to the idea that sort of that the honesty of, of what you produce sometimes just has the merit in and of itself and you hope it carries through culture and whatever and, and everywhere and like at the beginning of the podcast we, we talked about somebody challenging it recently this is not a recent comment right this is this 40 is, years old right this is Right, this is being challenged offset, right? Like it's, um, yeah, you've got a you've got a flat in your car and you walked away from it for forty years and you've come back to make a complaint because uh, it's it's somehow relevant today. And hopefully, everything he's wrote and everything he took back from his father is uh, is, is going to ring relevant through generations. So. Yeah, this really strikes me as a work of art that the artist had to get out. Like, it wasn't for a commercial reason. It wasn't for, uh, you know, I want to make, you know, I want to do this, create this for, you know, money. This seems so personal, like, if it, he had to create it. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get into the details about why he did Mouse, you could read Meta Mouse, which is also him explaining why he wrote Mouse. Um, it's 
he did it because he got tired of having to answer the same questions to people over and over again. Uh, so, like you, Sasha. Uh, so, if you're interested, the book is titled Meta Mouse. It is a look inside the modern classic mouse. It's by Art Spiegelman, and it won uh, the 2011 National Jewish Book Award in the autobiography biography category. That uh, he also, you were talking about not wanting money. I think we should set up the perspective for our listeners. So when this came out, it was being self-published as part of the underground comic scene. Back in the late 70s, early 80s, I think it started getting published in the early 80s, even though he began writing it from you know, in the 70s. Um, he, he was self-publishing the stuff. Uh, DC and Marvel Comics pretty much dominated the scene of comic book uh, you know, there were some exceptions, but it was superhero-driven. Uh, and underground comics, they were self-published, and they could do anything they wanted. And that's what all, like, him and Crumb and all those other guys were trying to experiment with it. Not as a genre, but as a way to tell, as a, a medium, rather than as a genre, I think is the best way to describe it, Right. So it, you could make a work of art from these cartoons and you know, these comic books that people really still to this day don't respect as a medium. Uh, he we're also getting there. We're, we're getting there. It's, as, a, as a graduate student of comic books, uh, can confirm <laughs> we're getting there. Um, but it's interesting that like. It's interesting to the underground comics actually have a lot of literature and in co comic studies journals written about them. Um, everything from like queer theory to feminist theory to Alison Bechdel and like all that jazz. I don't want to go on too much of a tangent with it, but now like even the superhero comics are also starting to get that academic sort of um, attention, particularly from like literature experts and English professors and things like that. And now historians. And when, uh, Mike. Oh, I just wanted to mention one more thing. The anthropomorphic uh, nature of the comic book, that goes back into the 1950s uh, and, when, and 60s. In the 40s, superheroes were king, and then they waned in popularity. But what didn't wane is... Animal comics. Uh, so, you know, you have Scrooge McDuck and Daffy Duck outselling Superman by that point. Uh, so they, there's a long history of animals uh, being anthropomorphized. Yeah, I also, I just don't want to undersell um, his wife's contribution to the publication, editing, and distribution of the comic. Francois Mouly, uh, she's you know, just a, a French woman who is, who is hell-bent on getting her husband's story told. Uh, she was a tour de force in making sure this happened and making sure that the, the publication, that the art he created was publicized. And she was instrumental in doing that. So there's... Um, there's a story there too. I don't know the whole story there, but 
uh, it's something I'd like to know more about, and I'll, I'll probably look into after this, but it's, um, it's there. Definitely, it's definitely it's, a driving force. Uh, it's mentioned it's often. Yeah. Was, I just uh, like to also note that, like, the timing that this is coming at is really, this, this whole thing with Tennessee is really important to note, because right now, there was a study that was published, I think, last year that talks about sort of the status of Holocaust education in this country, and it's 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 very abysmal. Um, it's it's very sad how little the average person knows about this. And well, that, that kind of brings us to one point that we wanted to talk about, and that was the the Whoopi Goldberg on the View. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. I think we have slightly different perspectives on that because we talked about it earlier. You guys were talking about it earlier, and I haven't heard anything about this, so I'm really okay. excited. <laughs> so I need oh, you're I knew at least I, I one person. I knew at least one person would not have heard this because yeah, I got my two gentlemen on. I am not afraid. Let's hear it. So, we don't watch do that often. I'm gonna try to be as concise as I can, and Tom, if I forget anything, maybe you can fill in. Um, Whoopi Goldberg is on the View, and I think they were talking about this or something similar, and. Basically, Whoopi Goldberg said that the Holocaust was not about race. She said it was just a... She basically characterized it as like a white-on-white conflict, just white people killing other white people. Um, I think I have a quote here from it. Let me pull it up here. It's about man's inhumanity to man, she said. And then I think one of the other uh, viewers, uh, people jumped in and says, well, what about the Jews? And she, she did not say the Romani. She said the G word, which I will not use. Um, which I thought was like, okay, you made half a point, but then Whoopi's like, no, these are just white people hurting other white people. And that caused a media storm. The Jewish people, myself included, I just, I watched the video and my jaw dropped and I'm like, did, did she really just say that? Um, most of the, the, for those that might not know, because again, Holocaust education is at a very low level. Um, the Holocaust, if, as Mouse demonstrates, Jews were racialized. The Nazis had this idea of what it means to be a white person, an Aryan person, and the Jews did not fit that. No matter how pale or passing we were, we did not fit that mold. And there's a long history in Europe of, and actually in a lot of places, of Jews never being considered um, as the same as the people in the country they're living. Um, and then we can get into a long historical debate about that. But then, so Whoopi Goldberg then I guess made an apology, and then um, she was suspended from the View for two weeks. And I sort of laughed and said, "Okay." Uh, personally, personal opinion here. I don't think she needs to be canceled for this. Um, I think this is a good opportunity for a teachable moment. I know um, Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in Israel, um, invited her to come and visit and take the tour, which is. If you haven't done it, I highly recommend it. It is one of the most powerful, resonating experiences. There really is no Holocaust museum like this anywhere in the world. Um, and so that's sort of where we are. I think I think I got everything. I don't know if I'm I think you, you really got everything, except I should mention that Joy Behar, who's Jewish, uh, was the person that corrected uh, Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg went a couple of times to kind of correct herself, but she always ended it with, I'm sorry if people took it that way, which is not an apology. apology. The one thing that Sasha and I disagreed with just a little bit when we were talking, it was like, this really didn't come from a place of uh, hate. It came from a place of absolute, total ignorance. 
Oh, I don't and, think we disagreed about that. I don't. But think... my next line is what you disagreed with. Uh-huh. And I said not exactly willing ignorance, and you said maybe willing ignorance. But I, I, I don't know because frankly, I can't imagine that a woman who's had who's a successful and, and you know. And, 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 you know, she's an Oscar winner and has done all of these different things, doesn't know the very basic premise of the Holocaust, which I, I, I'm willing to forgive a little bit, but I think what she should have said immediately when she was corrected was, oh, I'm sorry, I need to look more into this. Yeah. Not well, I miss, sort of I like, misspoke, I'm, it's about both. Yeah, she could have, she should have just admitted that she was wrong. Yeah. When, you know, various Jewish people pointed it out. But then she's like, oh, I'm sorry you misinterpreted. It was basically, I'm sorry you misinterpreted what I said. And it's like, no, we didn't misinterpret. You were just talking out of your ass and didn't know what you were saying. And you, you just kind of have to own it. And like like I said, I don't think, the, the, the suspension from The View is kind of silly to me. Um, I think she, they, the, the network should have asked her to issue a real apology. And that should have been the end of it. And maybe she, she, and she should go and visit Yad Vashem and learn something. Because clearly there's very big gaps in her knowledge on this. Um, I, that's I believe she was thinking that it wasn't, it couldn't be racist because it was based on a religion. But that's the first mistake, right? Uh, I, I, I know it's a mistake. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to explain her thinking, which I probably shouldn't do, but... Um, the idea here is that, you know, Judaism isn't just a religion. It's an ethnic identity. It's it's in our genetics. Um, you know, you can take a DNA test and it will tell you if you're Jewish. Um, 2%, you can't take a DNA 2% test Abba Shazani. Azerbaijani. Two. That's cool. Yeah. Right? I'm excited by it. A DNA test won't tell you if you're Catholic. Um, oh, I like that. That's a great one. <laughs> um... So there is an ethnic component. There, there is like there, being Jewish is an ethnic identity. It's an ethno-religious identity, right? So I can be Jewish by birth. I can be Jewish by practice, um, and people can convert and be Jewish if they want to do that. I don't know why you would want to do that, but if you want to do that, okay. It's because um, you, you love a Jew. That's because <laughs> you never want to have bacon. Um, by but that. That's what it boils down to, right? It's an yeah. ethno. Primarily, it's an ethno-religious identity. So even if I, as somebody who is Jewish, if I don't go to temple every week, if I don't necessarily keep kosher, I'm still Jewish because it's not just about the beliefs. It's more complicated than that. Right. Oh yeah. I'm only an ethnic Jew, as I am an atheist, right? So I am. Uh, people say, "Are you Jewish?" And I'm like, "Well, technically." Well, technically. Right? Uh, my father's Jewish, so I'm related to a lot of Jewish people. So I have. I have the ethnic right to complain about Jews. I've claimed that <laughs> for myself. I'm related. I'm related to plenty of Jews. Some of them are awful. Some and of them as, are fantastic. And as the only as the only Jew in his high school, he got to make up a shit ton of oh, holidays. Yeah. Let me just say, all of my folks back in high school, pre-internet, I took so many vacation days on made-up Jewish holidays. You people are fucking idiots. I mean, hundreds. Does that count as cultural appropriation? Mm. No, and, and no. yet, no. It's it's high school wisdom. Don't don't fight me on this. This was amazing in the early late eighties, early nineties. I took like an extra forty days off of high school. And yet, because 
Nobody knew. There was no internet. They couldn't tell me I was wrong. Yeah, the circumcision must was not a holiday. You don't know that. If he doesn't, I definitely do. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, the first thing Josh yelled into a mic when there was feedback at my <laughs> wedding was, Jesus Christ! Well, it's like a colloquial phrase now. It has yeah, no religious implications whatsoever. Yeah. I'm just going to yeah, say Jesus was a Jew, so. Yeah. Well, He's you know, this is an Avenue Q joke. Jesus was Jewish, and then they burst out laughing. Um, you did the voice, too, which is great. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's not, it doesn't take much with this high-pitched voice. It's not that hard. Uh, I've, been, I've been told I sound like a Muppet uh, bouncer. Like, you can't bring chickens in this bar. I can see that. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. All right, so let's <laughs> talk a little bit of the 2B5. So let's, uh, let's put a capper on, uh, on Mouse. First off, um, really a turning point in my life is when I read Mouse. Uh, it really turned me on to the fact that comic books can be history. Comic books can be Pulitzer Prize winners. Comic books can be deep and interesting and thoughtful. It brought me into thinking about comic books more as, you know, something we could study than anything else. So that's what Mouse was for me. How about you, Mike? Yeah, it's a good book. Uh, how about you, Tommy? Mouse is a, a very personal story, and it has two stories at one. It has a story about a man trying to reconnect with his father and the troubles that he has doing it. And it also is a story about a Holocaust survivor and his attempts to socialize and reintegrate to society after all of those horrible experiences and the effects that it has on him throughout his life. Last words there, Josh? Uh, it's a transcription of parts of my family. Yeah. I, I have... Polish family, I have survivors in my family my father and his father and my great uncle Max have similar stories it is um, it, but it's also a reminder of how my family originally came to Boston, Massachusetts my great uncle Max as an Auschwitz survivor came here as a tailor in Boston and eventually moved to New York and that's where my family is that um, there's something there. There's there's history that we all pull, and it's it's so relatable to me and and how I grew up, and especially familiar relationships in that story are very um, very telling to me, and it's uh, it's personal. It's I a very it's a personal story for me, and I. I and I'm glad it's out there. I'm glad it's in the world. And nobody should take that away from a child who wants to learn more about history. Yeah. It should be out there, available to everybody. I, I like what Stephen King said. He goes, as soon as someone bans a book, man, that should be your reading list. Yeah. They tell you not to read it. You should go out to read it. Any, any last words on Auschwitz? Uh, Auschwitz. On uh, Mouse, uh, Sasha? Um, a few. So my own family story is kind of, complicated but my family was actually evacuated by the Soviet Union from the Ukraine excuse me from Ukraine um into deeper into Russia to um it was one of the few, there's a few 
I don't remember the exact number because it's hard to find English-based records, um, so I have to look at the Russian and Ukrainian sources. Um, but there's a few, several thousand Jews that were evacuated um, by the Soviets um, as the Nazis were marching forward. Not everyone was fortunate to get out. A lot, there was a lot of massacres. My family um, was fortunate enough to get out, and then my grandfather on one side and a great-grandfather on another side actually fought for the Red Army during World War II. Wow. But, yeah, um, here's what I am going to say about this book. Um, everybody needs to read this book, um, especially if you are not Jewish, especially if you don't know anything about the Holocaust, and you need to read this book. Um, it is it is a very personal account, and I think as we are unfortunately losing more and more survivors whose stories kids growing up right now may not ever hear in person, having, even if it's slightly fictionalized and it's anthropomorphized animals, it's still such a powerful story that I think everyone needs to read at some point in their lives. And there are actually a few other graphic novels uh, or comics that relate to this that we're probably going to touch upon in a second. But one of those, and I'm sorry if I'm going to take your segue here, is actually X-Men Magneto's Testaments. Was that in the front of the back of the log box for anybody? No. All right, then go for it, Sasha. So X-Men Magneto's Testament was published in 2000, and I want to say 2005, maybe 9. Um, so early 2000s. But it is a five or six issue miniseries that chronicles Magneto's childhood in Germany. And it goes from him getting kicked out of school because he's Jewish, eventually to getting to Auschwitz, eventually escaping from Auschwitz and meeting Magda um, within that. And it's, it's terrifying on a level because it, he's a kid. He's, you know, nine, ten years old, I think, in, in, in Magneto's Testaments. And to see him go through this, and then, the, actually, I think he's 13, and there's a point where, like, he's in the selection line, and somebody's like, tell them you're this old instead of this old uh, if you want to live. And it's like, it's it, the imagery is so powerful in this book. And I can look up the exact artist and writer, but it's a very powerful miniseries. We can leave that up to everyone's imagination. We're bad at this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and let me just say, uh, you know, I, I love the fact that you're uh, asking people to read this book, even though you yourself have trouble getting all the way through it. Um, I, I was never triggered by anything until very recently. And, like, I read something that triggered me, and it was really, really hard for me. Like, I cried for, like, hours. I couldn't get over it. And, uh, like, I finally understand what that's like. So uh, kudos for you for both respecting and liking this book. And, and not being able to get through it, I really respect that. That's, it's got to be tough. I'm never reading that book again. <laughs> oh, that was it like earlier in the pandemic when they were talking about shortages in Diet Coke? That never happened. <laughs> I never, I, I'm a Diet Coke fiend, and the, the shortage of Diet Coke never really got to me. Still got my precious. <laughs> hey man, this is Kevin Smith, uh, Silent Bob from all those terrible Jane Silent Bob type pictures, and you are listening to Thinking Outside the Long Box Comics Talk for Comics Fans. What do you got the front of the long box? At the front of the long box, I got Art Spiegelman. Um, he he was in the news a couple years ago uh, for uh, 
he had pub- they'd been asked by a designer publisher who was going to be reprinting some of the very first Marvel comics to uh, do a write-up for the front of it. Uh, and so he wrote, uh, he essentially wrote up the, uh, a forward for the, uh, the comic book on early Marvel comics. And, uh, like he's, it's very good. And the guardian, if you Google guardian art Spiegelman, uh, you'll probably find the, the article itself. Um, he, it's a great little history of comic books told by uh, an actual guy who knows comic book history. Um, uh, and he he gives lectures all over the place on, like, uh, really early comics uh, that date back to, like, the 16 and 1700s and stuff like that. So this dude's uh, just brilliant if you get a chance to listen to any of his interviews. Uh, the yellow shirt kid era. Uh, but what got him into trouble, and I don't, it wasn't really trouble, but uh, he, uh, I'm just going to quote these two paragraphs. Uh, the young Jewish creators of the first superheroes conjured up mythic, almost godlike, secular saviors to deal with the threatening economic dislocations that surrounded them in the Great Depression and gave shape to their premonitions of an impending global war. Comics allowed readers to escape into fantasy by projecting themselves onto invulnerable heroes. Auschwitz and Hiroshima make more sense as dark comic book cataclysms than the events in our real world. In today's all-too-real world, Captain America's most nefarious villain, the Red Skull, is alive on screen, and an orange skull haunts America. Gosh. International fascism again looms large. How quickly we humans forget. Study these Golden Age comics hard, boys and girls, and the dislocations that have followed following the global economic meltdown of 2008 help bring us to the point where the planet itself seems likely to melt down. Armageddon seems somehow plausible, and we're all turned into helpless children scared of forces grander than we can imagine, looking for respite and answers and superheroes flying across the screens in our chapel of dreams. So... I wonder what part of that got him in trouble. Hmm. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the... He submitted the article and uh, Marvel Comics... Uh, it wasn't... Uh, Marvel Comics just reached out and asked can you please remove the orange skull comet? And he was like, no, I can't, because I'm talking about fascism, <laughs> and it's important today as it was back in the time when these creators were making these comic books. You can't- and I'm sure there was someone out there who said, can you take out that part where you don't like Hitler? And the guy went, okay. Yeah. So I guess I'm just like, is it like Marvel went through a whole period where they were like, oh, Hydra is in Nazis, even though they look just like Nazis and they act just like Nazis. If it looks like a pit, you know, if it talks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's a duck. Um, not to say that, you know, Trump is Hitler and I, I, let's not go down that rabbit hole. Um, cause that's a headache. Nobody needs this late in the evening. Um, but the, 
Like, it, the, it, it's weird that that's what they had an issue with. Yeah, that's exactly what they had the issue with. <laughs> and Spiegelman didn't back down, obviously. And the Guardian found out about it. They were like, we'll publish it for you. So, <laughs> I won't do it. <laughs> Which he said... It was going to be like a three or four hundred dollar boutique comic book, which maybe several hundred people would have read my article, and instead, I got like one point four million views. <laughs> so, thanks, Marvel. Is the article that says Our "Golden Age superheroes were shaped by the rise of fascism." That one. Uh, that is probably it. Yes. Is it my big one? Probably it. <laughs> yes, that is it. Tommy, what are you, that's great, Mike. I love that one. Way to really put a good cap on it. Tommy, I hope you can bring it up with something just as prevalent at the back of the law box. Well, you know, I mean, normally I would be bringing up some nice indie comic and having having some fun-loving thing. But, you know, we're having such a downer of an episode. I'm going to talk about Barefoot Jen. Also one of the most banned comic books. Yeah. I have Barefoot, it within arm's reach. It's right over there. Barefoot Jen by Kichi Nakasawa, which I'm probably saying wrong. Always. <laughs> Always. <laughs> uh, it's about uh, a boy's experience during the the bombing of Hiroshima. And uh, it's a fantastic historical uh, comic book about that experience. Uh, originally published, you know, around, uh, what, 1982 in the U.S., 1972 in Japan. Um, fantastic book. If, if people are interested in history, go ahead and read it. It's it's a fairly quick read. It's a, it's a manga. It's a fairly quick read, but it is a fantastic book. The art is great. Uh, everything about it is fantastic. And it's just the story of of just kind of the accounts of what happened during that experience and the the hours and days following it uh, in brutal honesty. Brutal honesty. And this brutal honesty. This book is uh, they've been tr they've tried to ban this book in Japan. Yeah. Um, because uh, they they do not like the depictions and they don't think it's uh, appropriate for children. Even though it's it's really a, a biography, essentially, well, a dramatization. Of, well, not even a dramatization. The, the the writer's parents actually died. The writer's count. Yeah, he, yeah, his parents died in Hiroshima. Uh, but the, the 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 depiction of the fallout from the nuclear bomb is horrific, as it really was. Yeah, <laughs> as it really was. People experienced absolutely horrible things yeah. as they happened. Yeah. 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 We did that. We got to remember that. Yeah. And that's the thing about when people are banning history. We did that. We should remember that. Yeah. Yeah. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Damn right. Pretty much. Yeah, except for poor, what's his name? Never knew that he was the ugly in that movie, and he was so disappointed. Eli Wallach? When he found out like 10 <laughs> years later. Like, wait, I thought, I thought he, he was, the, was bad. the ugly. That was but, the bad, right? Also a Jewish actor, Eli Wallach. He, for years, like a decade, thought he was the bad. Wait, Eli Wallach was Jewish? You know, 
stop that. No, I'm not kidding. I didn't. I honest to God didn't know he was. Yeah. Well, Tom, I'm sure he's at least two percent Jewish. (laughs) Well, he always played like a a Mexican feller. And for years, like literally a decade after that movie was filmed. He thought he was the bad, and someone finally was in a conversation. He was like, "How do you feel about this film?" And he's like, "I mean, being the ugly and all that." And he's like, "Wait, what?" Wow. <laughs> and I love you, I Wallach. He's fantastic. And honestly, I'm really gonna be angry if I find out he's passed. So I'm not sure because that he's an older fellow. Are we talking about? Is do we know if Eli Wallach's dead or alive? Uh, he's, he's dead. He passed away in 2014. Ah. Oh, well, you didn't kill him, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes when we mention people, Sasha, they, they die like they a week later. They die like a week later. <laughs> we did a whole Golden Girls. No, co- no more comments about older actors. Yeah. Uh, Our Golden Girls uh, podcast was, you know, horrific. It was just yeah. a killing field. It's a nightmare, yeah. Josh, I hope you have a fun tangent for us this week. Josh, give us a tangent. Oof, yeah. I was going to go for depressing, but now you want fun. I want fun. Come on, yeah, man. You're right. I should turn it around. I should turn it around. So I was going to go with uh, the uh, the literary character that made you put a book down and cry. Cause that's, uh, but uh, I'm going to turn it around and say, let's go with uh, a literary character that you read and it inspired you to go do something in your life. So many good ones. All right. Pipe in when you get the first one. Let me think. I mean, I need to think about it because I had my I had my depressing as shit one, and now I don't. I don't know. I gotta turn around. <laughs> gotta turn that shit I around. The, my 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 most hated character in all of literature is Daisy Buchanan. I hate her That's so valid. much. That's valid. Oh my god! If I had a gun in a room with her and Hitler, I'd shoot Daisy twice. Hitler, you're free to go. Bye-bye. I mean, the tick made me want to get a spoon and yell out "spoon." Uh, do you want to hear the 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 lie or the truth? Oh, tell the no, lie that you told. Tell I, the lie I told Adam told West. Straight, I was about to say, tell the lie that you told straight to Adam West's fucking face, and I was there for it. We sat down and had a drink with Adam West in a bar, and I told him that the whole reason that I became a police officer was because... He had inspired me by from Batman sixty six show, and he was he was he was so gracious about it. He's like, I am so glad. Well, what do you do? And I'm like, Yeah, I, I do this and that. And I, I gave him real examples of sh- shit I've done. And he is a federal agent. Uh, and so he was like, Oh my god, that's great. I am so happy that I had that positive effect on you. And I was like, Well, now I really appreciate it. He felt good about it. I totally lied about it. I, I, but that's not even the worst lie you told about a celebrity. Tell him what you told Stan Lee about Josh. Oh yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't lie. I Did we had a photo of Stan Josh. No lies. And he was like, "What's the What's the deal with the photo, true believer?" And we said, "This is our friend Josh." He's no, he can't be, no, he, no he's, he wasn't, he couldn't he's, make it, he couldn't be here He's today. not with us today, and I just shook my head to imply that you were dead to get more sympathy out of Stan Lee, and it fucking worked. <laughs> so we're holding up a picture, we're getting a group picture with Stan Lee, Josh's plane was snowed in. Yeah, 
my plane was snowed in and I didn't make it to the convention, but... Yeah. Uh, you didn't lie. Was meeting Stanley was meeting Stanley really worth it? Yep. Yeah. 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 He was nice to us. Yeah, he was super nice when he found out what you know Josh was no longer with us. Shouldn't make. Uh, I got my, and it's kind of weird. It's very counterintuitive. Uh, It's Rorschach, and uh, Rorschach says, "God didn't make the world this way. We did." And I take that as such a hopeful statement. Like, we can make it better. Like, I run a food bank. I, I have our needle pickup program I do on the weekends. I do things that I think make the world a better place. And when Rorschach says God doesn't make this place this way we do, I really take that as a, as a call to arms more than anything else. That we really can make this place heaven on earth if we try. So... That's a big motivation in my life, in what I do when I do. That's interesting, seeing Rorschach was talking about the hell that humans have created. Well, that's the of literature. It is open to interpretation. Right. I never never heard anything more positive in my life when I heard that, but I knew what he meant. But, like, for me, it was just a revelation. Yeah. He was going to help all those people get out of jail because he wasn't... Locked in with them, they were locked in there with him. <laughs> You're not trapped in here with me. <laughs> I'm not trapped in here with you. You're trapped in here with me. I like that line too for for the oh, more yeah. manly idiot monkey man brain uh, racist. <laughs> it's a great scene. The great scene. LT, did you have one for us? Keep uh, going. Right. Anybody else? Okay, I have one. All right. Um, this one came during a very. Uh, it's J. Michael Straczynski, because it has to be. Um, so this is from Amazing Spider-Man number 537. Um, set amidst, uh, I believe this was right in the middle of the Civil War. And basically, Cap gives Spidey a little bit of a pep talk, which boils down to that it doesn't matter if the entire world tells you that something wrong is something right. Right, and says, when the mob and the press and the whole world tells you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth until the whole world know you move. I and love I, that word! Such an important moment. Um, because he's talking about, like, the, the, the entire superhero community is so divided, and Peter's struggling, and, and, and everybody's struggling, and they're on different sides of this stupid civil war, but... He says, no matter what, you need to stick to your guns and fight for what's right, even if you're standing alone. And I think that's such a, first of all, it's always, it, it always just, like, gets, like, my heart starts pounding. I'm like, what's a cause I can go fight for right now? Um, so Cap's a good motivator. That is a call to arms that I love and I will fucking heed. I love, love, love. I do like the way they drew that panel, though. The panel is way too chesty. It's a little weird because, so you have, like, Cap standing sort of towering above on this rooftop, and Peter's just sort of, like, looking at his belt, I hope. Um, So the angle is a little bit strange, but what I found incredibly irritating in Captain America Civil War, the movie, was that they gave the, the best lines from that entire event to Sharon Carter. 
separate conversation altogether. So I, I guess I've always liked the uh, the Benny Gesserit saying that Paul Atreides says is the uh, fear is the mind killer. It's the little death that comes in the night. I've always tried to take heed in that and try to overcome every time that I've been afraid to try to do something. Not bad, okay. Josh, if you can't find anything hopeful, we'll take your depressive one. <laughs> oh. Well, no, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go hopeful. And it's uh, and it's from the first the same character as my hopeful statement. Okay. Very early in my life as a reader of fantasy and fiction and I'm just going to go with Sturm Brightblade from Dragonlance and uh, I was probably 9 or 10 when I read this and it was there is no glory dying in an inn trampled by trampled by stinking flapping goblin feet I never want to <laughs> die there <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. See, I thought you were going to go with Colossus. Nope. No. Peace <laughs> with your God, little man. For you. I thought you were going to go with the Alan Moore part. Uh, Could Justice? No. No. Really? Just... You say that quote all the time. That's like your tagline on some of your emails. Sometimes uh, Justice, um, or, or Lion is, uh, or Truth is like a Lion. Uh, Sometimes you gotta mix it up, you know. You can't yeah. just keep going with the same quote over and over again. It's a good yeah. point. It's a good point. So Sternbrightblood uh, <laughs> was the first character I was ever really sad when he died, like in literature. When I, like, I was, yeah, I was probably nine or ten when I was reading like deep into the Dragonlance novels, and Sturm dies, like in in the face of everything. Spoiler. It's not. It's it's not a spoiler. If you haven't read the book since 1984, it's definitely not a spoiler. You got to get out there. And he stood in the face of everything uh, against the people behind him who were both right and sometimes wrong, and did the right thing. And he died for it. Um, but he also uh, decided there was a time and a place for him to make that decision. And him getting drunk in a bar was not it, right? Like, he was a character who had some realism to him. He was a paladin and the, uh, the you know, the epitome of all that was good in that series. And he died early, and he died the way he wanted to, defending people uh, regardless of whether or not he thought they were the best people for the job. Tannis and... and uh, and everyone included, so I don't know. I just wanted to stand in front of the dragon for the rest of my life. Stand in front of the dragon for the rest of my life. I like that. That's that might be my new quote, Josh. Mike, you had a good one too for two that I always gave to someone else when you said we don't wrestle for the people who don't show up. We wrestle for the people who do show up. Uh, we were doing a wrestling show and it was a very sparse crowd. And some of the guys were like, well, you know, we'll go out there, we'll just do our thing. And Mike's like, nope, we're going to tear this place up. And we did. Well, Tom did. I did. Well, Tom did. <laughs> I did. I took that to heart. dislocated my shoulder that night. Oh, fuck this. Pop it back in, Tommy. Pop it back in. That brings us to plugs. Uh, Sasha, you got something to plug. You are, you're coming up at, at a couple of conferences, right? 
Couple of cons. Well, that's it's not confirmed yet. I have applications in for Awesome Con for the summer. I have applications in a Galaxy Con Richmond, which is May eighteenth through the twentieth, um, coming up. So I should their applications just closed like this week. So hopefully I'll hear back soon. Um, I've spoken there before. I'm going to be talking about Jewish representation in pop culture, everything from the ghost of Molly McGee and the ghost and Molly McGee. Uh, to the darker times of Glee that is better left unsaid, but we'll talk about it anyway. Please tell me you're going to mention Ben Grimm, one of my favorite Jewish characters in pop culture. Always. He's also one of the only two Jewish characters to have Jewish weddings in all of comic book history. Who's the other? Billy Kaplan, the greatest superhero in the Marvel Universe. Billy Kaplan? Yep. All right. A.K.A. Wiccan. Um, and funny enough, he and Ben both have the same rabbi. So the Avengers have an, there is an official like superhero rabbi that we can, that all of the Jewish superheroes can now go to. Nice. Um, so that, that's, yeah. Yeah. Does, does Kitty go to that one? That's one of my only other go-tos. You know, Kitty's status as a Jewish character, the, the X-Men comics right now and Jewish representation is sort of like a better left unsaid. Because it's it's just non-existent um, right now. The best cases of Jewish representation that I'm seeing is the new Moon Knight comic, which is pretty good. And I say that as somebody who's never really been a Moon Knight fan, it really takes a lot of his issues with his childhood and his father, and sort of just brings them to the forefront. They're actually being talked about, and they finally address the fact that he's a Jewish man who gets his powers from an Egyptian god. It's just a little too weird and biblical. But anywho. Um, <laughs> Let my people go, but also, thanks for the power. Yeah, um, in terms of, are we doing, like, social media plugs? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so you want. can find me over on geekgirl101.tumblr.com. I actually did write a little bit of a blurb about the fact that we've had two Jewish weddings in the last three years, and they both happen to be with the same rabbi in the same universe. So thank you, Marvel. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter at uh, geekgirl Kaplan, that is Kaplan with a K after, as previously stated, the greatest superhero in the Marvel Universe, Billy Kaplan. <laughs> I take it you like Billy Kaplan. Well, That's alright. Mikey, what do you got to plug over there, buddy? Well, I'd like to thank Kirby Crackle for providing our geek rock music every week. You can check him out at kirbycracklemusic.com Excellent. Tommy, sweet, sweet Tommy. I would like to plug geekorthodox.com 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 Hello, Tammy. GeekOrthodox.com Prepare or find t-shirts and other geeky things such as stained glass prints, Johnny Skywalker rocks glasses, baseball t-shirts, caps, you name it, they got it. GeekOrthodox.com I want to get uh, one of their Winchester Tavern uh, stained glass prints, so... That way I can put it in my window, and you guys can just all come over till this all blows over. Damn right we should. Fair hey. enough. Fair enough. That's what we should do. Uh, also, uh, I like to, I got two quick things to plug. I want to first plug uh, the Elizabeth, uh, the uh, our Patreon page, uh, which is the Logbox Guys at Patreon for a mere one dollar a month. What? Dollar a month? That's a that's ridiculous. I don't understand what's going on here. For, like, the price of a cup of coffee back in 1958, you can uh, uh, support us, and all the money does go to the Elizabeth Peabody House, which does a lot of great things. Uh, we have an after-school program uh, for underprivileged kids. We have a terrific uh, food bank that uh, provides food 
uh, to families in need in the Boston area. And uh, we recently had a, a huge influx of people coming in from the Middle East who are, have been relocated after what happened in Afghanistan. And we've been able to actually get to those places, their apartments, and fill them up and help them with furniture and moving stuff around. Uh, and they've been, like, so, so thankful and, and grateful. It just warms the heart to, to be able to, like, reach out and help these folks. And uh, they're doing great jobs. And uh, so thank you. All that money goes straight there. I uh, also want to thank, and Mike thought I was going to forget, Hotbox Pizza. Hotbox Pizza of Somerville, Massachusetts. Uh, this week they are donating to us enough pizzas that we're going to be able to send all the kids in our after-school program home with a couple of pizzas so they get to feed their families for a change. So everyone in our after-school program is going to be able to take hot pizzas home for their family. It's brought to you by Slice, uh, Slice Out Hunger in America. Uh, a terrific, terrific charity and Hotbox Pizza in Somerville. If you're in the Somerville area, terrible name, great pizza. <laughs> terrible name. Terrible name. Terrible. 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 Name. So bad. <laughs> I love you guys. I looked up Hotbox on Urban Dictionary and I really? was appalled by what it really, what it stands for yeah. in Urban yes, Dictionary. It should not be Googled. Just saying. Just saying. Yeah, yeah Lemon Party. That was my mistake. Uh, I should not have done that. That's on me. We love all the members of the Longbox Legion out there who are our supporters. Uh, We appreciate everybody who donates to the Patreon. And remember, it's easy to do well. It's harder to do good. Damn right it is. (laughs) And Mikey, what is this podcast like to you? Uh, This podcast is like drunk history, but for comics. Sweet, sweet Tommy, what do you got to say? I got to say, if uh, you haven't gotten your shot, maybe get your shot. And Josh, Pensacon, Pensacon, Pensacola, Florida, we're going to be there one freaking week. Uh, Pensacon will, is coming up in 10 days, 16 hours, 38 minutes, and 50 seconds as the recording of this, uh, of this podcast. So by the time you hear this, we will probably be basking in the gloriousness of the pan handle of Florida in 60-ish degree. Well, it, it'll be warmer than here. It'll be warmer than there. We'll probably be at Murphy's. What's the name of the, the Irish place we like to go? McGuire's. McGuire's. Oh, eat the There's brown a, bread. The, the, the tradition of McGuire's shall be met. And, uh, uh, and drinking bushwhackers. Yeah, come see us. We'll be doing panels. We'll be doing trivia. We'll be doing karaoke. Come see us at Pensacon 2022. We'll be so excited to be there. Uh, we'll be emceeing panels by authors and celebrities. Come see the Longbox guys. Come to the con. It's going to be a fantastic time. And if you're wearing one of our Longbox Legion shirts, or we will buy you drinks. Or a red velour tracksuit. I will That's right. What day are we going to do? Dude. What's up, bro? Bro. Bro. Bro, what day are we doing that? Bro? That's our group cosplay. Saturday, bro, right? Yeah. Saturday, Uh, bro. I think Saturday should be the big cosplay day, bro. And I got a fucking purple vest with purple pants, a blue jacket, and fucking pilgrim panels to wear on my shoes. Maybe that should be Saturday, bro. Yeah, maybe maybe that should. I'm just thinking. Like they're nerds or something. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be the 90s version of Sebastian Shaw, and it's going to be goddamn fantastic. You see this beard I'm growing? 
That's for fucking mutton chops, baby. Oh, it's gonna be amazing. I'm gonna be the pirate version of Nightcrawler. Uh huh. Going Blitz. blue, f- going Picks. blue face. Picks. Yeah. <laughs> and All I'm gonna be comfortable. Be I'm gonna go as multiple man. It's a t-shirt. Yeah. And I'm going and a trench coat. Okay. Please have the trench coat. Yeah. I'm going as the Rob Liefeld version of Cyclops. There'll be so many pouches. Yeah. So, so many pouches. 20 section, 27 extra abdominals. Well, what are you going to do about your feet? Uh, nobody's going to see them. Don't worry. We're, we're boxes. We're boxes. <laughs> that would be hilarious. You have a, a stripe down there, a panel closure. We, we all win one year as the multiple man, and as the multiple man, we had an eating disorder. All over the place. <laughs> it was great. We were going up a, an escalator, and somebody was going down, and by the time he got to the third one of us, he realized what he was seeing and was screaming, so no, because he wanted to get photos of us. But there was I, no findings. Yeah. yeah, it's just a T-shirt. It's great. <laughs> it's so easy. <laughs> So comfortable. And Sasha, do you have any last words, words of wisdom, something to go by? A good catchphrase? What's your catchphrase, Sasha? I don't really have one other than I'm here. No, I got, I got nothing. I'm, I'm just the pretty snarky one. Um, but thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to see you guys and uh, chat about comics. Sasha, we got to do this way more than once a year. You're, you're always welcome to come back anytime you want to be here. Sounds good. And Anytime Whoopi Goldberg steps in it, which is pretty freaking often. It's more than once a year, for God's yeah. sake. I don't know if I have time for that. I have a thesis to write. That's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, so that's going to do it for us. And don't forget what I say. Don't diss what you hate. Just promote what you love. You live longer. Thank you for the lot, box guys. <laughs>